0: Oh, okay. Uh, we're sure to recommend. And the thing that came up more than most was the beloved Canadian classic Anne of Green Gables. I'm not confident I had ever heard of this book before moving to Winnipeg. And I quickly learned how big of a deal it was to some Canadians. So our curiosity was piqued and Annabelle and I decided to read it together earlier this summer. And by read, I mean we listen to the audiobook. And I will tell you honestly that I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, For those who haven't read it, it is the story of a young orphan girl, Anne Shirley, who is adopted by a middle aged brother and sister and traces her growing up with them in the little town of Avonlea on Prince Edward Island. And a huge part of why this story has been so enduringly adored is due to the precocious and wonderfully joyful and strange character of Anne, who feels passionately and passionately and deeply about seemingly everything. I particularly enjoyed Anne's habit of giving fantastical names to the otherwise mundane features of the town. We are given a taste of her excitement and appreciation for her new home as she is on the carriage ride uh, to Avonlea for the first time. And even though this is at the beginning of the story, it had to be my favorite part of the book. She is just so enraptured and, and speaks so romantically about everything she sees. And quiet Matthew Cuthbert cannot understand at all what the big deal is. He sees a small farm pond that he has seen every day of his life and sees it and christens it the Lake of Shining Waters. Matthew sees a road surrounded by blossoming trees and sees the white way of delight. She is so filled with delight and beauty by uh, by what she sees that she can't help but come up with the most imaginative and fanciful name she can think of. It comes naturally for her to feel deeply and to find great joy in the beauty of the world around her. But as this theme develops in the story, everyone around her just doesn't get it. Most everyone else in Avonlea, the adults and the other children, think she is perfectly strange, and they are too pragmatic and practical to appreciate the beauty and find the joy in creation that Anne does. Now while there are many lessons that Anne has yet to learn, there is a picture of two kinds of people presented here that does deserve some reflection and consideration. While Matthew Cuthbert's quiet humility and dignity is respectable, It is dreadful to live with one's heart so closed that one is unable to be filled with joy and amazement. And on one hand, Anne's joy and amazement is infectious and something we ought to desire to emulate. But on the other hand, there is a lack of humility that she requires that her amazement should produce in her. You see, the lesson of Psalm 8 is not merely worship God and find greater appreciation in all he has made. That is true, of course that is true. But the lesson to be learned from Psalm 8 is so much more than just that. I have titled this sermon, Humble Amazement. The title of our sermon today is Humble Amazement because the effect that Psalm 8 should have in our hearts and our lives should be just that humble amazement for god's creation for god's purposes in creation and for god himself so let us pray that as we look at god's word today we would find wonders in it and would be filled with wonder by it father i pray now that you would you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to comprehend that which Otherwise, we would not. Father, as I said, we need you to work. Because if I speak as best as I can and if I have written as best as I ever could, if you're not doing something with it, it doesn't really amount to a whole lot. And Lord, I desire a lot to be done. You desire so much from us. And we feel so afraid to consider what sacrifices we might need to make, what things we might need to change, what things we might need to think differently about. But Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would be applying and convicting. Father, please be moving even now. We ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, folks. We have a change of pace this Sunday. As we have been working through the Psalms the last several weeks, we have been lamenting, as Psalms 3 through 7 are all laments. And get used to it, folks. Get used to it, because Psalms of lament make up the majority of the book of Psalms. But we need it. I'm not going to apologize for the emphasis of God's word, because the fact is, we don't know how to practice godly lament very well at all. We know how to be angry, bitter, and complain, but that is not the same as godly lament as we have seen over the past several weeks. But here, today, we have a different kind of psalm. Psalm 8 is the first psalm of praise that we have in the Psalter. You might be wondering, Chris, aren't all the psalms praising God? And you'd be right. Uh, All the psalms do praise God, but here when I say praise psalm, I am referring to its genre, what kind of psalm it is. And aside from praise and lament, which make up the overwhelming majority of the psalms, there are other kinds of psalms as well. Psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of trust, royal psalms, wisdom psalms. And like any kind of literature, each kind of psalm has its own distinct elements and characteristics that distinguishes it from the others. Praise Psalms distinguish themselves by specifically calling the reader, to li- reader or listener to praise God for his character and for his works as our creator and redeemer. They are specifically here to ignite our hearts. Praise Psalms are here to direct our affections towards God, to praise him anew for who he is and what he has done. Praise psalms are here to direct our affections towards God, to praise him anew for who he is and what he has done. But there is a genuine criticism here that is worth addressing. Some have asked, doesn't dissecting a psalm like this defeat the purpose? Wouldn't studying and analyzing a praise psalm be contrary to the effect of praise it ought to have? Well, for starters, depending on the person and the study, it certainly can be, but it doesn't have to be and it shouldn't be that way. Bible scholar Bruce Waltke addresses it this way. Admittedly, to analyze a psalm like this can seem tedious, like a botanist analyzing the makeup of a flower rather than enjoying its beauty. But in the end, the work of a botanist enhances our appreciation of the flower. The work of a botanist should enhance our appreciation of the flower. So too, the earnest study and reflection of of the student of Scripture should only increase our appreciation for Scripture and our joy in the God about whom it speaks. After all, This is why we sing the songs we sing, read the books we read, and preach the sermons we preach. If the songs we sing, the books we read, and the sermons we preach don't call you to love God, love others, and make disciples, then something has gone terribly wrong. So now, Let's talk a little bit more about praise psalms because understanding the way in which many of them are structured or organized helps us to better appreciate their purpose and understand what they are calling us to do and believe. Many praise psalms begin and end with a declaration or call to praise in God. We see this most clearly in what are called the Hallelujah psalms, which conclude the whole book. They all begin and end with Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord which, by the way, is not a statement, but a command. The author is not saying, I am praising the Lord. No, the author is commanding us, hey, you, praise the Lord. Do it right now. Scripture doesn't just encourage our praise. It demands our praise. And so a call to worship or declaration of praise to God often bookends, these praise psalms, and we see that also in our text today. It begins and ends with the exact same declaration of praise. But there is more within the content here that is helpful to understand. After the call to praise, the body of the psalm contains the reasons for our praise. So three sections. Opening, call to worship, declaration of praise, reasons for our praise, and then at the end, the concluding, uh, declaration or call to worship. What is God like that we should worship him? Those are the kinds of questions that, these, that this middle section is answering. What is God like? What has God done that we should remember him for? What will the Lord do for us that we should extol his holy name? And so the concluding call to praise should then be done with a renewed zeal in light of all the reasons for praise in God the psalm has just given us. This should remind us that scripture is very quick to give us ample reason for our worship of the Lord and that our praise of him should not live in the realm of generalities, but that the scripture calls our worship to be specific. It is one thing and a right thing to praise God for his goodness, but it is another thing And it is a sweeter thing when we answer the question, why? Oh, why do you praise God for his goodness? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Here's a thousand reasons. God delights in that kind of praise. And so, when we come to a praise psalm, like we do here in Psalm 8, we should ask ourselves a couple of questions in order to understand and apply it. First, what is the psalmist praising God for? What is the psalmist praising God for? And second, what effect should those reasons have on my worship of God? What effect should those reasons have on my praise for God. However, before we can answer those questions for Psalm 8, there is still something else we need to learn here. In case you don't know, I am a big fan of teaching folks how to read their Bibles. And I believe that when the word is preached, it is not only a time to teach what the Bible says, but also a time to teach people how to understand what the Bible says for themselves. So right now, I want to give you some tools here for your Bible study tool belts. Strap in, people. We're diving in. I can feel your excitement. (laughs) Thank you for the light woo. One of the most significant things to understand when studying a text of scripture is its structure. Structure is how the author has organized the ideas he intends to communicate. I'll say that again. Structure is how the author has, or, has organized the ideas he intends to communicate. Different genres or text types of scripture use different literary devices to organize their ideas within the text structure. For example, the fundamental mark of a story, uh, or a story's structure, is its plot. A plot is how we understand the structure and therefore the main ideas of a story. Poetry, on the other hand, like the Psalms, has other literary devices that authors use to organize their ideas into a structure. Most commonly, psalms utilize figurative language to develop images in order to communicate an idea. For example, in Psalm 1, the righteous are compared to a tree planted by streams that bear good fruit. The image points to an idea that the author intends to communicate. But there is another kind of structure that the biblical authors use frequently to organize their ideas. Now, the fancy $10 $10 name for, it is, for this is called a chiasm. I'll spell that, C-H-I-A-S-M, chiasm. A chiasm is a mirrored stack of ideas where the point at the center is the main idea of the whole thing. This is where the slides would have been incredibly helpful. So it might look like this, A1. B1, and then C in the middle, and then the opposite, B2, and then A2. It might be longer, shorter, might have more layers, but it's mirrored with the main idea in the center. I like to call these sandwiches. They are sandwich structures, and the thing you need to know about sandwiches is that the meat is in the middle. That's how I remember it, I'm not kidding. A chiasm is a sandwich with the meat, the main idea, in the middle. You know, bread, cheese, you got some veg in there, meat in the center. Okay. Now the problem for us is that our culture doesn't organize ideas this way. So this is going to be rather foreign to us and feels rather strange sometimes. In school, we were taught the five-paragraph essay... Dun dun dun. Introduction, three points for the body, and a conclusion. So we might struggle with this. These sandwich structures kind of feel weird because it means that you might be reading the ending and it's exactly where you started. We see this in the book of Lamentations, actually. The whole book is a sandwich structure. That's why the high point of the book of Lamentations is at the center but we don't want the high note at the center, we want the high note at the end of the story. So until we understand the importance of this way the the biblical authors organize their ideas, things like the ending of the Book of Lamentations are just gonna feel bizarre to us. Now the cool thing about these sandwiches is that they aren't unique to the Psalms. They aren't actually even just unique to poetry. They are used all over the Bible in all kinds of literature, and they can come in all manner of shapes and sizes. They can be as long as a paragraph, as long as a chapter, and sometimes an author builds a sandwich structure that is several chapters long. For example, the Gospel of Mark is famous for its sandwiches that are built across several chapters at a time. He was just running a delicatessen. Now, even though these sandwich structures exist throughout scripture, That doesn't mean they are everywhere. Don't be looking for sandwiches where they aren't to be found. Sometimes the author may just be using bookends, and the fancy $10 word for this is called an inclusio. It's Latin. An inclusio or bookends just have the something similar or the same thing at the beginning and end of a section of scripture. Now, bookends function differently in that they frame and often interpret the content that is in between them. Here's the difference. A sandwich structure points to the main meaty idea in the center. And a bookend frames and holds together what's in between them. So let me welcome you now into my study. Come sit with me next, on my, at my desk. Because this is exactly what I had to figure out this week. This is what I'm doing. I'm not, you know, like doing magic, you know, every, every week to figure out what the Bible means. I'm sitting down at my desk and I'm asking, all right, Lord, what's the main idea you intend to communicate through this text? And I see a repeated line at the beginning and end of the psalm. And I say, oh, look at that. That's interesting. The psalm has bookends. I wonder how that is intended to frame what's in the rest of the psalm. But as I kept studying, I began to see that David was actually organizing the psalm into a sandwich structure. And that helped me significantly to understand the main idea that David has for us here in Psalm 8. This is how tools like this are so helpful and important. Now let me help you see how I saw this. Now the hints of a sandwich structure are in the similarities. They are in the repeated words or ideas in the different sections but the purpose and the artistry of these structures are seen in the differences. Here we see this psalm is full of contrasts. Psalm eight is full of contrasts. And the sandwich structure helps us to see those contrasts and what they are contrasting. So here we go. We've got our bread, our cheese, and our meat in the middle. So the bread. We got two declarations of praise. In verses 1a, and then at the bottom, verse 9. Then the cheese. In the beginning, we see in verses uh, 1b through verse 3, the Lord's rule over creation. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then in verses 6 through 8, David talks about man's rule over creation. You have given him, that is humanity, dominion over the work of your hands. And lastly, our meat in the middle here, is verses four and five. David's reflection on mankind's place in creation. And it is in his reflection on mankind's place in creation that we understand the main idea of this psalm and understand the effect this should have on our lives and our worship of God. All right. Everyone tracking with me here? Everyone still awake? Praise God. All right, so let's look back now at the opening declaration of praise. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now at first glance, the way that David addresses God here looks rather redundant. I mean, why would he repeat himself? Well, in fact, He isn't. Even though we read in our Bibles the same word Lord here, in the Hebrew, it is actually two different words. It's the title Yahweh Adonai. Yahweh being the covenant name for God, the name he revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. When Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? And God responded to Moses, I am who I am. So David begins by addressing God by his covenant name. And Adonai is the word for God which specifically bears the connotation of ruler or master. So David is essentially addressing God like this. "O oh Yahweh, our sovereign ruler. Now you may be wondering, well, why didn't the translators just say that? Well, good question. There are in fact many reasons Uh, which I will tell you to ask Pastor Matt about. He will tell you more than you want to know. But anyway, in a way, they have actually told you. At least they have indicated that it isn't simply the same word twice. You may not know this, but in our English Bibles, when you see in the Old Testament, the Lord spelled all caps, That is the translators or the translation editors informing you that the Hebrew word there is God's covenant name, Yahweh. And more than likely, other non-capitalized uses of Lord in the Old Testament would be the word Adonai. So do not get the idea that you need to know Hebrew to know this. I don't know Hebrew either. The translators aren't trying to hide things from you. This is why our Bibles are full of footnotes which I strongly encourage you to look at from time to time. And now, we can actually see why David begins by praising God for his name. How majestic is your name in all the earth. He addresses God by calling him by his covenant name, Yahweh, the name revealed to Moses, the name so holy that the Jews considered it unable to be spoken That is the name that is majestic. And majestic here isn't just a synonym for awesome or beautiful. Majestic is a word that connotes authority. To be majestic is to be that which bears power and sovereign authority. So from the outset of Psalm 8 in David's opening declaration of praise, we can see and understand the very theme that David develops and reflects upon throughout the rest of the psalm. So, to state it more interpretively, David begins by saying, O Yahweh, our sovereign ruler, how full of power and authority your name is in all the earth. It is a declaration of praise of God's rule over his creation. And this continues, as David says, right after you have set your glory above the heavens. Now this is a major point of reflection throughout the book of Psalms, that God's glory is revealed through what he has made. And we see this theological point made throughout the Bible and it is not to be undervalued. Creation reveals the glory of God. Do you view the world like that? Maybe you know that, but do you, do you view the world like that? Do you look at the moon or the sky or the trees or the lakes and praise the Lord for what he has made? Or do you just, does it just go unnoticed or unconsidered? Or do you maybe appreciate its beauty and move on without also considering how its beauty is sourced in God's beauty? And we cannot underestimate how significant this theological point is that God's glory is set above the heavens. His glory is not in the heavens, the sun, moon, stars, and sky in themselves. God is distinct and separate from his creation. His glory is not in the things he has made, but his glory is displayed in the works he has made. And in our time of neo pantheism, in our culture and a renewed fervency and resurgence of neo-pagan nature worship, that is a theological point that we cannot take for granted. It will be a necessary starting point for conversations you might have with non-Christians here in Winnipeg. God made the world and the sky and all the universe, but he is not in them Their beauty and greatness point to his power and glory. Their orderliness and their wonderful design demonstrate God's rule and reign over all the universe. And it is this that David praises. Now this is where things get a little odd. David goes on in verse two, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And I agree with you that that is totally out of left field for me. David's all like Yahweh, your name is majestic, your glory is above the heavens, and then. babies? <laughs> and then in verse three, he just continues to reflect upon God's work in creating the moon and the stars. It's like, what is going on here? And no, David is not saying, I know the sky is pretty cool, but hold on guys, babies are pretty cool too. (laughs) Uh, And while babies are indeed wonderful, and there are several layers here, David is intending to communicate. Initially, it, it doesn't make any sense. Babies and infants cannot praise God. How does God establish strength through the babbling of babies? But remember, this is Poetry. And the imagery used here is meant to point to an idea. But that doesn't mean we should just ignore the imagery. First of all, note that these are God's foes. You, that is, the Lord, has established strength because of his foes to defeat his enemy. And what does he use to defeat his enemies? Yup, that's right, babies. And that actually makes sense because this is how God loves to work. This is how God likes to accomplish his victories. Like it says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, that God uses the foolish things to shame the wise and the weak things, like babies, to shame the strong. So later... After the gathering, when you see one of the many babies here, think to yourself, behold, the means of God's victory over Satan. And no, it isn't silly to say that either. But even though David is drawing on this imagery of God's desire to use weak things to accomplish his victories, the image of babies is still pointing to a different idea now what are these babies pointing us to well in order to answer that question we need to keep reading look now at verse 3 when i look at your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you that you care for him so the scene changes David is observing the beauty of the night sky. He considers the work of God in creating the moon and stars and he begins to reflect. But what does he reflect upon? He asks a question that bears a very relatable sentiment. Have we not all done this at one time or another? We have looked up at the glorious sunset or we have watched the sky darken just a terrifying thunderstorm. Or you have sat up late and just taken in the starry beauty of the prairie sky. And we have felt small, insignificant, like a little speck in this massive universe. And David didn't even know the enormity of the universe that we understand today. And he still felt this way. And now we can take pictures of galaxies and nebulas and asteroid fields and stars the size of which we can't even comprehend. David reflects upon the apparent insignificance of humanity. This is something that is familiar to all of us. I mean, even the atheist astrophysicist feels small and insignificant after examining all he does from his telescope. But he reflects very differently. And he asks very different questions and reaches very different conclusions to from those that David asks. David instead responds with humble amazement. Humble amazement. He looks at the beauty and enormity of the night sky. And he is amazed. He is astonished at God's glory and power and magnitude. He doesn't just feel his smallness. He is humbled by God's bigness. That is the key distinction. He doesn't just feel that mankind is small and insignificant compared to the vastness of the universe. He feels so small compared to how the vastness of the universe points to how great God is. And this creates a conundrum. A conundrum for David seeming impossibility that leaves him in humble amazement not just at god himself but at god's purposes and plans for this world he reflects upon the heavens and responds what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of god the son of man that you care for him Lord, you are so great and the universe you created is so massive. Why would you ever care for little old me? And good night. That is just such a human question and such a relatable feeling. Like David, we know that God that God does consider and care for you and me and everybody. But it just seems so irksome sometimes. In view of all that goes on in the universe, it just doesn't feel right sometimes. It's no wonder that this is a lie we are often tempted to believe. We sometimes wrestle with this lie that God doesn't care for us. We think to ourselves, God, he's got so many other important things to worry about. He doesn't doesn't care about me. He doesn't concern himself with people and things this insignificant he doesn't care about my little prayers my things that i struggle with it is no surprise that this is actually the basis for a very common retort from skeptics and atheists alike that if god did exist there would be no way he would ever care about what i do with my life God would be too big and people are far too insignificant for him to bother with. It's all bogus. It's all false. It's a lie. David knows what scripture teaches. This is what the Psalms are intended to do. They teach us God's word, not by telling us new information, but by reflecting upon the truth that God has already revealed. David feels the tension in his heart, but he doesn't run from it and he doesn't try to resolve it. Instead, he just ruminates in it. He looks at the moon and the stars and he just struggles to wrap his mind around the facts. We are so minuscule in comparison to all the works that God has made. And God cares deeply for each and every one of us and knows even the most insignificant and superfluous details, like the number of hairs on our head and the number of cells in our bodies. Now, do you know what the most important word in this psalm is? What do you think? What is the most important word in this psalm? Remember earlier I said that Psalm 8 is full of contrasts, that's a hint. The most important word in Psalm 8 is not man, not heavens, not even Lord. The most important word in Psalm 8 is yet. It's yet. Look at verse 5. Yet. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Remember that verses four and five are the center of our sandwich here in Psalm 8. These contrasting ideas are the center point, the main idea of the Psalm. David's reflection on mankind's place in creation is a contrast that is full of tension for him and for us it is the apparent insignificance of humanity in view of God's creation and his sovereign rule over the universe contrasted with the fact that God has made humanity in his image only a little lower than the heavenly beings and bestowed on humanity a place of glory and honor. That is what David is struggling to wrap his mind around and not just him as we have already discussed, this is something that many people throughout the ages have struggled to comprehend. But the contrast continues as David begins his psalm. began his psalm by musing over and reflecting upon God's rule, uh, glory in His rule over all He has made. He now reflects upon this place of honor that God has given to mankind. He does this in verses six through eight, saying. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. The place of honor God has given to mankind is the honor of being his vice regents, his little rulers, the bearers of his image to have dominion and rule over the earth. He has given humanity dominion to subdue creation and to rule over all the other creatures he has made. Again, a very controversial point in our world today. But this is essential to understanding scripture and essential to Christian theology. David is reflecting upon and hearkening back to the creation mandate given to Adam in Genesis 1. There God said in Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every other living thing that moves on the earth. David practically paraphrases the back half of this verse here. He uses the same word to describe this mandate, dominion. He also lists all the creatures just in opposite order of how they were created. The animals in verse seven. Then the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea in verse eight. But in view of God's glorious and sovereign rule over the world, it is mind-blowing to David that he has given us lowly creatures made from the dust the inestimable privilege and duty to establish God's rule on the earth. You see, this is one of the most significant reasons why God created mankind to be his image bearers. Now, there are many conversations about what exactly the image of God in humanity is, of which I also have an opinion, but that is not what is important right now. But what is agreed upon much more is what the image of God means for humanity. It means that every person inherently has worth, value and dignity and are to be respected and honored as an image bearer of God. This is why murder is such a heinous crime. It is a desecration of one who bears God's image. It is a defacement of God's image. Furthermore, the image of God in us means that that people image or display God's rule in the world. This is why the mandate at creation is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God desires his image, the display of his rule, to be shown throughout his creation And in doing this, God has also extended a degree of rule to humanity as his vice regents over what he has made. As mankind fills the earth and subdues it, they image God and display his rule over the world. But this brings us back to the central question David has. This is exactly what David is wrestling with. He observes the heavens and he says, Yahweh, your, name, your majestic name and your rule is already evident throughout the earth. The glory of your rule is displayed by the glorious things you have created. The moon, the stars, and all the earth. Why have you bothered with us, silly, foolish, and sinful as we are? You see, even though the creation mandate was given to Adam prior to the fall and the entrance of sin into the world, That didn't mean the creation mandate became null and void. The presence of sin has not invalidated God's mandate and purposes for humanity. Every person is still commanded to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. However, sin has certainly complicated the matter. The dominion we now have over the earth is certainly not the kind of dominion God desired we would have at creation. Now, we and the world itself are under the curse of sin. Creation, too, rebels against the created order. The Lord has placed all things under the feet of mankind, but that rule is exercised with sin, is complicated by sin, and made all the more difficult because of sin. David knows, God, man's dominion over this world, by the way, it's a mess. You still want to care about all of us and all our disasters? This is how you want to defeat your enemies and accomplish your purposes in creation. Really? And God says, yes, absolutely. This is what I made you for. Recall that the, intense, contrasting ideas of man's place in creation is surrounded within the contrast and tension of the rule that God has given to man and God's rule over creation. It is mind-blowing to David that God has given lowly man this place of glory and honor, and it brings him to a place of humble amazement when he reflects upon the fact that God desires to use sinful humanity to accomplish his purposes in the universe and it should bring us to a place of humble amazement too now this brings us back to the babies don't think i wasn't going to forget about that we got to talk about the baby some more now We said earlier that the image of these babbling babies establishing God's rule over his enemies demonstrates God's desire to use the weak things of this world to shame the strong in accomplishing his victories. This is how God likes to show himself as the all-powerful ruler that he is. But we did not yet clarify what the image of these babbling babies is pointing to. Do we have any guesses? It's us. We are the babbling babies and infants. Do you understand why that is? Remember, David's reflection is centered in the context of this contrast and tension. He is left in awe that God would use lowly humanity to establish his strength by defeating his enemies and display his rule on the earth. See that it is out of the mouth of the babies that he establishes strength. But in what way does God do this? It isn't literally through baby talk that God defeats his enemies. Babies don't speak. They cannot praise God. They cannot even ask, for, ask him for help. Therefore, these babbling babies are a metaphor for God's people, his children, who in themselves are helpless, but through which God nevertheless uses to silence the enemy and the avenger. Again, this is why David is so amazed. Really, Lord? You're gonna use us, babies and infants, helpless that we are, to display your rule over the earth? Really? One of my favorite professors, Dr. Allman, who would often say this, ladies and gentlemen, Do you realize how God needs to put things in terms we will understand? Do you understand how you need to explain something differently to a child? Yes? You understand this? Well, compared to God, we aren't even two year olds. Compared to God, we aren't even toddlers. We are babies and infants. And it is through the means of us, his children. Babies that we are, that God has chosen to accomplish his purposes in the world. It's just wild. This is what we have been driving towards this morning, brothers and sisters. This is what we desperately need to understand and treasure from this psalm. David's reflection creation leaves him in humble amazement that God would use mankind to accomplish his purposes in the world. I'll say that again. This is our main idea, folks. David's reflection on creation leaves him in humble amazement that God would use mankind to accomplish his purposes in the world. It truly is mind-boggling. And this is a message that our world so desperately needs. Across the millennia, mankind has stood in awestruck wonder at the majesty displayed in God's creation. But what have they done? They exchanged the truth of God that was plain to them for a lie, and they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. They looked up at the glory of the sun, moon, and stars, and upon realizing their insignificance, worshipped the created things rather than the God whose glory they displayed. And before we are quick to assume that we are better than they, let me remind you that there is nothing new under the sun. In our corner of the world, men and women look up at the night sky and conclude in the vastness of the universe, here I am, insignificant, a speck on the ash heap of a doomed universe. Any meaning or purpose in my life is is whatever lie I can insist upon myself and others to best convince myself that my existence has any meaning at all. Is it any surprise that suicide rates are at record-shattering all-time highs? It all seems as if humanity is in an all-out tailspin. Why? Well, it's not because of the media. It's not because of the laundry list of politicians and corporations that you hate. And it isn't because of the latest anti-biblical ideology. At its core, it is because humanity has sinfully rejected God himself and the glorious purpose that he created us for. And what is left but a chasing after the wind. Our society is full of ghosts floating about from pleasure to pleasure trying to find meaning and purpose where nothing of substance is to be found. They are but sugared poisons and accursed delicacies that Satan places in front of us like a carrot on a string as we wander, wantonly meander into oblivion. The human spirit can bear many things, but it cannot bear hopelessness. And without meaning or purpose in this life, there is no hope to be found. You want to find out where it's all gone wrong? If you dig down deep enough, you'll find out that at bottom, it is due to rejection of purpose and the rejection of the God who has given us that purpose. Without Him, you're born, you suffer, You die, but there's a loophole. The truth, the truth folks, is that God rules this world he has created. His glory is displayed in all its arrayed beauties. He governs it and cares intimately for every little detail. He cares for you and me deeply, infinitely so. And to us broken and helpless creatures, he has given the glorious purpose of displaying his rule across the world he has made. And it is through us crying babies that God defeats his enemies. But how? How does this happen? In what way do we really have dominion over the world? It's all a sinful disaster. Adam ultimately failed to follow the creation mandate. Have we done much better? No, not really. Though we still attempt to follow the creation mandate God initially gave to Adam, it is not without pain, struggle, and resistance. And this should not surprise us as ultimately this is exactly what God promised would happen in Genesis 3 when he cursed the earth itself. What else did God promise in Genesis 3? Genesis 3.15, God promised that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And life continued on. And humanity was fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth and it was full of strife and destruction. And yet, and yet, the generations went on And the serpent never accomplished his goal of destroying the seed of the woman. So in a very real sense, brothers and sisters, in a very real sense, as the successive generations went on of babies and babies and of more babies, always getting closer to one baby. The one baby that was promised who would one day crush the head of the serpent it was ultimately through the means of jesus the god man that god created or god accomplished the defeat of his enemies when jesus crushed the serpent's head at the cross and rose from the dead it is through the weak things like a little baby in a manger that god desired to accomplish his victories over his enemies and it is through the God of man, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, that mankind's purpose of rulership over the world will be fulfilled. Where humanity has failed to subdue all things under his feet, Jesus will perfectly accomplish His at his return when he establishes his kingdom on the earth and fulfills the purpose that God intended for humanity. And it is on this point that the author of Hebrews writes. I ask that you would turn to Hebrews chapter two. And It is on this point that the author of Hebrews write, writes in chapter two, verses five through nine. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. commenting on this text. Author Bruce Waltke writes, in his incarnation, God the Son condescended to become one of us in order to accomplish our redemption and as our representative to restore human dominion over all things, including death and Satan himself. Indeed, one one day, All things will be under the feet of Jesus and God's rule will fill the earth. But as we wait, as we wait for that day to come, how are we to live? How are we to worship God? How do we declare anew and afresh, O Lord, O our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Now, while it is true that it is through one promised baby, Jesus Christ, that God defeated his enemy, it is also true that David here is speaking to the fact that God desires to use us, his people, his children who worship him, to accomplish his purposes in the world. And it is primarily in our praise of him that we do this in our pointing to Jesus as our all-satisfying purpose that we principally accomplish God's purposes for us in the world. Jesus, in fact, applies this text in the exact same way in Matthew 21, 16. There Jesus had just ridden into the Jerusalem on a donkey, had thrown the money changers out of the temple, and was healing the blind and the lame who were praising him as the Messiah. It says there, and the chief priests and the scribes said to him, do you hear what these that these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Again, we see God using the foolish things to confound the wise and the weak things to shame the strong. And by our bearing witness to Jesus, we do the very same thing. We are but God's children who simply desire to obey the will of our Father. And now as I close, I would like to point out that it is by no accident that from this psalm a fairly common English idiom finds its origin. Spoken in the King James English, out of the mouths of babes. Often said when a child says something obvious that everyone else is just too scared to say or too blind to see. And it should be unsurprising at this point that great wisdom should come from unlikely places. And it also seems of no accident to me that in this psalm of deep reflection on the beauty of God's creation, that God desired to compare us to babies, to children who are not yet too world-weary and pragmatic and are keen to pause and delight in the beauty of creation. There are few things so great as the soul-stirring power of childlike wonder. And we are in such dreadful need of wonder. We so desperately need to learn again what it means to be in awed wonder at the glory of God in the heavens like children that are filled with zeal just to live. We are so bound up by our insecurities and our fears that we do not even know what it is like to be filled with wonder anymore. This is why we need this psalm. We need to learn again what it means to be brought to a place of humble amazement. This was where David was able to reflect and praise God as he does here. It's not for the feeling of wonder in itself that we need this, but for the fact that without it, we cannot find joy in God as we ought and cannot reflect and worship him as he desires. Now, I know that this will come easier for some of us than, rather than others but that doesn't mean we are absolved from this necessity. God commands, listen to me, God commands your affections. We are to treasure him, find joy in him, love him, praise him, and to do so as his children with the zeal and freedom he has given us that we have either forgotten or have never understood pray and fight to learn what it means to wonder at God's work of creation and stand in humble amazement that he chose us to be his children and to be his instruments to accomplish his purposes it's incredible do you believe that do you believe just how incredible that is are you so shackled by the anxieties of this world that you don't know what it means to wonder like God's child Pray that God would help you take off that which he has freed you from. Listen to your children. Listen to them. Learn from them. Watch them. Find joy in things you long since thought were silly and foolish. Just sit down long enough and hopefully you'll realize that green is a really cool color and that dragonflies can make your day and that the sky is always bigger than you thought. Learn this from your children. And then teach them that God made all of it. That he made it for us to enjoy. And that he made it for us to praise him for. And he made it for us to have dominion over in the kingdom of his son. Maybe you are sitting there and thinking that you don't need to learn this at all. Maybe you think that this wonder business is just a waste of time or that you have no need to learn this from your children, you already got this down. Let me ask you how quickly you are to be dismissive or to criticize the genuine God-gladdening excitement of your children. How quickly do you respond to your child's inquisitive joy with an ever so pessimistic, yeah, but, and list of reasons why life sucks and you shouldn't be that excited? Mom, Dad, do you see how awesome the clouds are today? Yeah, but it's probably going to rain today and the clouds are really ruining my plans. So, Let us strive to not allow dismissiveness and criticism to be our common responses when, the, when we respond to the wonder of our children and of one another. Do not squelch the joy of a brother or sister when they are happily praising God for the sweet gifts he gives them. hey, I just became a Christian recently and I can't believe the kind of unity the Bible says we have in Christ. It's amazing. Oh yeah? We'll wait till you learn all the thousand things Christians disagree on. You laugh, but this is how we talk. Do not be the kind of person that by dismissiveness, criticism, or pessimism stifles the wonder and joy of others, especially that of your children. I would imagine that if you spent some time in honest reflection, you would remember how your parents and others in your life began to suffocate the wonder and joy that that once came so easily for you come to scripture with a renewed sense of zeal expecting to be amazed at what god has done maybe you are sitting here and you are thinking that this kind of joy and wonder is just impossible for you your life is too full of burden and sorrow for you to ever feel this way trust me when i say that you are not alone in that feeling But let me remind you that in Christ we can in fact be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It is possible, it is possible, ladies and gentlemen, to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As you get a glimpse through the storm clouds, may it be a reminder to you of the hope you have in Christ. That all things will be made right when he rules a renewed world. The stars themselves remind us that the shadow is merely a passing thing. There is beauty that the darkness cannot touch. He made us for good and glorious purposes. Even in the midst of our failure and in the midst of our pain, we can be comforted by the fact that the enemy has been defeated. All God's purposes will be fulfilled, there is hope, there is hope. Listen to me, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Do not underestimate how desperately we need a recovery of our sight. Pray that God would give you eyes to see the world and your lives and your salvation with a renewed sense of awe and delight. That, like David, God would give you eyes to see his glory displayed in the heavens, and that you would be stunned by his work and purposes in creation. Pray, pray that he would again bring you to a place of humble amazement, that you would live freely with a joy undaunted by the sorrows and cares of this passing world. Live in light of the hope we have in the fulfillment of humanity's purpose in the coming kingdom of the beloved son. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, do the impossible. Do the impossible right now. Please, Lord. This world is so disastrous and blinding that we cannot see what we need to see. We cannot see what we need to see in your word and in the works you have made in ourselves. Lord, let us be filled with awe and delight and wonder and joy. Again, let us learn from this psalm. Let us learn what it means to sing your praises like, with childlike wonder that stands amazed at what you have done in the creation of this universe and in the coming of your son, and the accomplishing of the redemption that he has accomplished and the rule that he will have over this earth Please show us this new and fresh for our hearts to sing with joy and to live with the hope that we have and to share that hope with all those we meet. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.